Sometimes when I'm researching, I read something that I wish that I could unread. And for this one, it was this article I came across called 10 Reasons the Crucifixion Story Makes No Sense. And it was a tough one to read, to get through. This guy, like many who write these articles, makes every effort to sound logical and smart. He's poking holes, or he feels like he is, in all of these things. And reading that article, I thought, okay, I'm going to put this lesson together, and I'm going to poke holes in each one of these. And then I realized, actually, that's not what this lesson is. This is supposed to be on the Apostles' Creed. So, um, but he starts off saying, I'm afraid that the crucifixion story doesn't strike me as that big a deal. He goes on to make several claims that demonstrate he has a complete lack of understanding of who God is. His view of God is something that looks a lot like us. So as he goes on, he writes, the reason behind the sacrifice, mankind's original sin, makes no sense. That Jesus is perfect, so his doing something noble is like water flowing downhill. He's only acting in his nature. It's just not that big a deal. And finally he writes, this is the 21st century. Must Iron Age customs persist so that we need a human sacrifice? If God wants to forgive us, couldn't he just forgive us? I mean, that's what we do. And really, as he closes that out, that's what we do, right? That's how we think of forgiving people in our broken and sinful and fallen state. It makes me want to go back to where we started with God the Father Almighty and think about who is God? Who are we talking about when we're talking about this forgiveness? But this author is not unique. He just represents one of a huge number of articles and blogs. You see some of this with some of these guys going apostate right now. Um, if you haven't seen that, kind of out of the mute Christian music industry. But it's this view that downgrades God, misunderstands who he is, it elevates human beings, and it denies the problem of our sin. And therefore, it's a world that just can't understand why it needs a savior. So in a world that doesn't understand why they need a savior, they can't join with us at all or even understand why we would make the affirmations that we make in the Apostles' Creed. And so it's been a while when we started this series off. We used to put it up there, but I'm not prepared enough to have anything up there. So you actually have the creed in front of you. I think this would be a good time to do what we did when we started and actually say it together. And we're only going to say up to the point we're at today. So if you can say it with me, we believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. So we're going to stop there because tonight we're going to look at why the suffering and the crucifixion and the death and burial of Jesus are a big deal, why it's really the biggest deal for all of humanity, for all of creation, and especially for us who believe it's a big deal. So let's open in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we humbly come to you to worship you, to gather and explore the work of your Son, our Savior. We just pray that you are with us tonight as we explore these glorious truths that you've provided to us in your word, that it touches our hearts, and that we reflect on it and we take this message back out to the world. We pray these names in your son's name. Amen. So last week, Brent talked about the virgin birth. And when he talked about the virgin birth, he asked the question, was there any other way for God to save us other than the virgin birth? So I thought I would pose the same question. Is there any other, well, let me pose it carefully here. Was the suffering, the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus necessary? And how you answer that question is going to be dependent on the presuppositions you bring to that and why you think I'm actually asking that question. Was it necessary for the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to come as a human being, to suffer, well, to live an obedient life, then suffer, then die on the cross? Was that necessary? And I'm going to say the answer is no. And I hope that actually makes you a little bit uncomfortable to say that the answer is no. None of that actually is necessary. So I'll ask you a different question. Did God create angels? Now, hopefully everybody says yes to that in their head. God created angels. So what is 2 Peter 2, 4? And I didn't put this one on your sheets because I didn't want you to look ahead on this one. What does it tell us about angels? 2 Peter 2.4 tells us, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So hopefully you can kind of see where I'm going with the a slight word game there on how you ask that question. Was it necessary for God to save us? That's the real question. And when you look at that, you have to step back and say, we should be extremely grateful that we have a merciful God who did choose to save us. From Genesis 3 onward, we have the promise that salvation is planned. It's planned from all eternity. God is going to save us. So the better question to ask is, is there or was there any other way for God to save his people? other than sending his son to live a perfectly obedient life, to suffer and die on the cross. And on that one, we can say no. There was no other way for God to do that. Once God in his love and mercy decided to save his people, to call a people unto himself, scripture indicates that there is no other way for God to do this other than what we said. We know from 1 Corinthians, first, or 1 Corinthians 15 that with the first Adam, we inherit sin and death. But with the second Adam, with Jesus Christ, through his obedience and substitutionary atonement, we end up with life. So there was no other way for this to happen. And that's why we read the words of our Lord's Prayer in Matthew 26, 39. My Father... 
If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If it be possible, let's do it another way. Right? So the first question I asked was a bit of a setup. But the real question, once God decides to save us, is this necessary? Absolutely. John Piper in The Pleasures of God puts it this way. A God infinitely committed to promote the worth of his name and the greatness of his glory is engaging all his powers to bring the enemies of his name, that's us, into everlasting joy and honor. And how God does this, how he glorifies himself and our salvation is through the work of his son. And our faith, as we remember, requires us to believe at a minimum what we say in the Apostles' Creed. We can believe more, but we have to believe at least this. And so we're starting with suffered under Pontius Pilate. So remember the flow, we believe in Jesus, born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. The first thing when we see this is a statement of historical fact. Right? When we see suffered under Pontius Pilate, we're pointing to a distinct period of time and a real historical figure. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD who gave the order for crucifixion. But not only does this point to history, it also fulfills prophecy, and it fulfills the very words of Jesus. In Luke 18, and we're told throughout this, after I read this statement, that the disciples just didn't understand this at all when he said it. But Luke 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So it fulfills prophecy. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we'll dig into that a little bit more. But in addition to fulfilling prophecy in his words, why else is it important to say he suffered under Pontius Pilate? What else might that point to? One of the things that points to is the trial of Jesus was visible, and it was in front of a public governmental authority, not just the religious leaders. This wasn't a church matter, but this was public. It was before the government. And it served the purpose of bringing his innocence out into public view. Pilate repeatedly declares Jesus is innocent as he sought to release him. Now, I'm not suggesting that Pilate is innocent in the way that he handled this. But when we make this confession and we look at what happened, this brings it out for the world to see. So here in Luke 23, Starting with verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. In verse 14, he says to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Verse 15, neither did Herod. Herod didn't find anything to charge him with either. 
And in verse 22, a third time, he comes back and says, Why? Why crucify him? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. And finally, if we turn back to Matthew 27, 19, you actually see Pilate's wife coming to him even and saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So we confess that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, a governor who symbolically washed his hands of this matter and said, this man's not guilty, but still turned him over to the cross. Yet the statement that we make confirms even more than just these facts. It points to the centrality of the substitutionary suffering of Christ before we get to the cross. We're often quick to jump to the centrality of the cross when we affirm our beliefs, but it is the centrality of this suffering to the gospel that's important as well. And this is where we're going to look at Isaiah 52 and 53. Now, Isaiah 52 and 53 lays out five key components of the suffering servant. Five components that we see met in only one person in history, in Jesus. And the five components are a promise, the mission, his innocence, his sacrifice, and the vindication. Now, I have printed this out for you because I actually chose to use the Christian Standard Bible for this particular passage, just because I love how it states it so clearly, and because it's a passage that we're all pretty familiar with, and sometimes I think it's enlightening to read it in a little bit different way. So, You've got it in front of you since most of you, I think, will probably come here with the ESV since that's what we use. So starting with verse 13, we see the promise that's made about the suffering servant. See, my servant will be successful. He'll be raised and lifted up, greatly exalted. We have a Messiah who will suffer on our behalf. God promises right from the outset that the work of the suffering servant will be successful. The purpose of his suffering, the salvation and the redemption of his people, is going to be complete. We know that before we even get into what this mission is. The mission is in verses 4 through 6. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. We make this creedal affirmation because the suffering of Jesus, indeed the very incarnation of Jesus, points to the cross, points to his work on our behalf. He became man so that he could suffer for us all the way to paying the ultimate price. And the next verse, verse 7, is prophecy we see fulfilled 
and it speaks to his innocence. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. And we see that as an example in Luke. We see it in more than just Luke, but in Luke 23, 9, when Herod has questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. He was innocent, yet he suffered. And Herod, getting no answer, did he make him suffer? He did. Luke continues, noting that after the silence, the chief priests and scribes continued vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. That doesn't even sound as bad as Mark, if you look at the account in Mark 15. Because there what we see is the beating and the suffering and the crown of thorns put on his head, and then he is sent back. He suffered. He suffered physically, he suffered mentally, and he would suffer spiritually. Isaiah 53, 9 notes that he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. He was innocent. Yet that innocence made him the perfect, spotless lamb who could stand and make that sacrifice on our behalf, something that we could not do. Isaiah 53.10 speaks to his sacrifice. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. It was the will of a perfect and holy God to crush the son, the very son who when he was baptized and came up out of the water, the Lord spoke in Mark 1.11, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Well pleased. And yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. The father sent the son and the son willingly came and willingly obeyed and willingly made this sacrifice. Philippians 2.8 records it, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was his sacrifice. To, all, to God to come and live in humanity was a sacrifice as well, but if we look at Hebrews 10 and we think about the sacrificial system that was in place, it's a shadow and a type of, of what's to come in Jesus, in his suffering, in the cross. Here the priests would make sacrifices of animals, but they would need to do that continually. And it was never complete. It always had to be redone. Nothing lasted. Yet Hebrews 9, 12, and 14 provide that Jesus entered once all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here's the promise of the suffering servant that Isaiah makes. He would not only suffer at the hands of mankind, 
but he would suffer the wrath of God. He would be crushed and he would be punished on account of our sins to make a lasting atonement in our place. But then Isaiah declares also the vindication of Jesus, the culmination of his sufferings in Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels." By his suffering and his finished work on the cross, there's nothing left to be done. He satisfied God's wrath against sin. He satisfied God's judgment and his holiness. And he paid the price in full for us. We were rightly accursed as sinners. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet, by becoming cursed on behalf of us and bearing the guilt of our sins, Jesus experiences the full wrath of God. The suffering of Jesus is horrific, yet that's the very thing that provides for our justification if we repent from sins and believe in Him. So to sum up, we affirm that Jesus suffered for us. He suffered at the outset by taking on a human nature. In doing this, he experiences hunger and thirst and weariness, a need for sleep, all the experiences of humanity that would be disgraceful for an eternal God who created us. And he suffered spiritually. He took on the curse of sin on our behalf, and he suffered the wrath of God for his people. Galatians 3:13 we read Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that actually takes us to the next affirmation that we're going to cover. He was crucified, dead and buried. So last week Brent took us to Matthew 1 to look at the virgin birth, the conception of the Holy Spirit. I want to look at Matthew 1.21 for a minute. So speaking to Joseph, who's rightly confused and trying to figure out what to do, he's betrothed to a pregnant woman in a culture that has no tolerance for this. This is a terrible thing. And the angel tells him something so crucially important to us in verse 21, of the incarnate Son of God, the angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. One mission and a promise right at the start, before his birth, it will be complete. God the Son will take on a human nature and he will do this because he will save his people from their sins. So we've already looked at the suffering. Now we want to look at the cross. 
the centrality of the cross to the achievement of this salvation for his people. 1 Corinthians 2.2 is one that always sticks with me if we think about the centrality of the cross when Paul comes to the Corinthians saying, I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. And the reason he gives us for this in verse 5 is so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And if we look at the gospel summary that we often turn to in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5, this is the way he tells the gospel. For I delivered to you what was of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So how will Jesus save his people? He'll save them through his perfect obedience, through his suffering, and ultimately through his crucifixion, his death, and burial. And then the, the part that we're not touching on, but will be covered in a couple weeks, is the resurrection. Now, when the author of the article that we began all of this with made the comment that the crucifixion is just not that big a deal, should we be surprised when we hear things like that? I don't think so. Not in this world. We shouldn't be surprised. We should probably be sad. I'll admit when I read that article in whole, I was more than sad. I was quite frustrated. But we shouldn't be surprised. We think about the way Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It shouldn't surprise us that there are those who see the cross and think to themselves, what's the big deal? This seems foolish. The world will think it's foolish. But I actually want to address the final point of that article because we're talking about the crucifixion. So I'll remind you that author says, this is the 21st century. Must Iron Age customs persist so that we need a human sacrifice? If God wants to forgive us, couldn't he just forgive us? That's how we do it. And when I see that, I can't help but be drawn a little bit to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 2. 214, where he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Our hope arises from the work that Jesus does on the cross, and it begins with a right understanding of God, which leads to a correct understanding of the problem of sin. But to many, this message is not a message of promise. To many, it is a message carrying the stench of death. That's what Paul tells us. But to others, to those who believe, it's a beautiful fragrance of life, of forgiveness, of salvation of an eternity to spend in worship with our God. 
So to understand this, we really need to think about the holiness of God. And coupled, and we did this, actually, and I, and I won't go into a lot of detail on this because you can go back and listen to one of our earlier lessons when we did God the Father Almighty. We looked at these attributes, right? We looked at holiness in depth, and we looked at holiness coupled with righteousness and justice. And namely, we looked at the fact that God doesn't administer justice in accordance with rules or laws like we do, but God is just. He is a law unto himself. He's righteous and holy and just. He always does what's right. He can't simply overlook a sin. He can't do what that author said, and why can't he just forgive it and be like us and arbitrarily decide that what you do I'll ignore and what you do I'll punish. That's not fair. That's not just. Fairness isn't a concept in the Bible, but it's, but it's a way to sort of think about justice a little bit. Um, but it can't be just and simply overlook sin and leave it unpunished. But thankfully, he also chooses to be merciful. And we looked at that. We didn't look at that as an attribute, but as a choice. And I like the way that R.C. Sproul sums this up, and you have this quote in front of you. Even though justice and mercy are not the same thing, justice is linked to righteousness, and righteousness may at times include mercy and grace. The reason we need to distinguish between them is that justice is necessary to righteousness, but mercy and grace are actions God takes freely. God is never required to be merciful or gracious. The moment we think that God owes us grace or mercy, we are no longer thinking about grace and mercy. Our minds tend to trip there so that we confuse mercy and grace with justice. Justice may be owed, but mercy and grace are always voluntary. So if we have a just God whose holiness sets him apart from all of creation, what can we do? The very essence of God despises sin, which is rebellion against his holy rule. We know from Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. From Exodus 34, where even after talking about his steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy, God says he's a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And if we look to Isaiah 13, 9 and 11, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So I don't think I need to tell you this is bad news, right? This is not a good situation. God is holy. We're not. We carry the sin of Adam from birth and we heap on top of that our own sin from about the time we can make a decision. Dr. Moeller puts it this way in his book. The holiness of God bubbles over into his wrath against sin. God must punish sin. For nothing in all the cosmos equates to greater evil than the sinfulness of mankind. Sin represents an open declaration of war against the rule and authority of God. The wages of such sin will be a swift 
and eternal death. Now, our own Baptist Faith and Message 2000 covers this as well. And in a commentary on the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is cleverly titled The Baptist Faith and Message, so it's a little hard to keep them separate, it goes on to explain what we profess in that creed. As soon as we are morally able, we sin. We break God's law and come under God's condemnation for our own sin. This is not a pretty picture, but it is both real and honest. Without a clear diagnosis of our human condition as sinners, we cannot understand ourselves or realize our need for a Savior. So put another way, we have nothing to offer for our own salvation. So where's our hope? Where do we get this hope? Our hope is in God himself. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Now, I think that puts a pretty heavy damper on any notion that we often hear that we can do anything to save ourselves. Right? Besides me, there is no Savior. There is nothing that we can do. Our only hope is in God himself. He can provide a Savior. He has to provide a Savior if we're to be saved. A Savior who will live in perfect obedience that we can't do and suffer in our place and make the atoning sacrifice. Verse 25 of that same chapter continues, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now I want to zero in on that a little bit. Why does he save us? Does he save us because he's bringing us up, making us our own kings? We're going to live life like that? No, he does it for his glory alone, right? He's going to do that for his own sake. Our salvation comes from God to glorify God so that he can be glorified through us. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. So we know that justice and holiness are attributes of God. And we've talked about wrath against sin. Wrath is not an attribute. Wrath is an element of holiness. Wrath is the expression of God's holiness when it comes into contact with sin. And to understand that, allows us to get a better understanding of what we mean when what we hear the term propitiation. So wrath is that reaction that a holy God has against sin, has to have. And so for that, we look at Romans 3, 23, 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And Hebrews 2, 17, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. 
So God in his holiness stands in wrath against our sin. But Christ can cover for those sins and turn back the wrath of God by paying for them. So propitiation is basically a word meaning a sacrifice that turns back someone's wrath or anger. In this case, it's God's wrath against sin, ultimately against us, is sinful. And God is just, so salvation has to come in a way that's compatible with that justice. So the death of Jesus, the perfect atoning sacrifice, involves placating God's wrath. It provides that propitiation. He's able to endure that in our place. And his work on the cross, therefore, removed our guilt. It propitiated God. And that's what we mean when we read about propitiation. So God himself provides our hope, and he always has. So to go back and answer our author who's complaining about the sacrificial system, why would we ever need a human sacrifice? It's the 21st century. We're way past these things. And again, remember I say he has recharacterized God. He's not talking about the God of the Bible. We saw in Hebrews 9 and 10, when we talked about it before, that the priest could make a sacrificial offering to atone for sins of the people, but it's always temporary. Only the precious blood of God the Son could provide a permanent, once and for all, sacrifice for all sins. God provided the means of atoning for sins in the Old Testament. He provided that um, through the sacrificial system. So we can't really say, like this author, that, that we don't need this anymore. We've got a new God. We actually have to look. God created this way of being able to come into his presence, and now he's provided through the work of his son on the cross, the crucifixion, a permanent sacrifice for our sins. So is crucifixion a big deal? Without it, we're left completely hopeless. We just march through life with no hope, working to an eternal death, eternity separated from God. So the cross is absolutely central to our faith. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Or in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 where Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The cross is our symbol of hope because it's where Jesus made the sacrifice. It's where he died and brings us the ability to be reconciled with the Father for his glory. So we confess that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. And was the cross central to the apostles? Well, if we look at the last week of Jesus' life, Matthew devotes 33% of the gospel to that, Mark 37%, Luke 25%, and John 42%. If you go further and you look at the book of Acts and you look at each one of the sermons that is, that is given in the book of Acts, 
The death on the cross features centrally in every single one of those gospel presentations. They just simply do not speak about the gospel by turning to things like ethical teachings and doing good unto others and obedience. And they point to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and through him the only way that we can be reconciled to God. So we'll close out by looking at John's account of the sacrifice of Jesus. So we're going to work through John chapter 19. This one I didn't put on the sheet for you, so you'll have to turn to it. So John chapter 19, his story begins with an absolutely horrific account of the sufferings of Jesus. To be flogged by the Romans is to endure pain that I actually can't even imagine. To have skin stripped from your back, to have your internal organs damaged, muscles softening, it, it's horrifying. There's, there's many articles, there was actually fairly recently a doctor wrote an, an academic article looking at the impact of the flogging, not crucifixion, the flogging that preceded crucifixion by the Romans. And, and I actually couldn't read the whole thing. It is, I have a little squeamish on that kind of stuff. It's horrible. People died often before they were even crucified. It's terrible. A thorn of crowns crammed onto his head, being mocked and beaten. And then you mix this account with the humiliation and the rejection it's God the Son looking out on his creation who's, who's crying out for his crucifixion and celebrating the suffering. He's looking out to the people who he is going to the cross to save, ultimately. So we'll, we'll start with verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Jumping down to verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. When we read this, this scene should shock and horrify us. And I think it probably doesn't as much as it should because we grow up hearing this story, reading it so often that it doesn't sink in. He is being rejected 
by the religious leaders who have been waiting and looking forward to a Messiah. He is the Messiah. He's standing there in front of them. They are more well-versed with the prophecies of Isaiah that we just worked through that seem so clear to us that they point to Jesus. They knew them inside and out. This was the suffering servant they waited for. And Jesus is standing there suffering with these very people who've been waiting for the Messiah, crying out to kill him in the most gruesome and horrific and disgusting way. Even when Pilate prefers to let Jesus go, now completely beaten, battered, bloody, wearing a crown of thorns, they still scream out and demand one of the worst, most humiliating deaths possible at that time. And it's the death that God himself has cursed. Right? God pronounced a curse on this in Deuteronomy 21. It is a terrible, terrible thing. John 19, 18 continues with the cold fact that he is hung and crucified between two criminals who actually deserve this punishment. It says, there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So as if the beatings aren't enough, and the humiliation's not enough. They now pound nails through his wrists, drive them through his ankles, and he would hang there shamefully, painfully. And he'd do that by his very own initiative, voluntarily, for us. He actually came to save the very people who crucified him. And you'll see this in Acts when Peter cries out to the, the leadership, the very ones who were crying out to crucify him, Peter is bringing them the good news of the gospel and what Christ did for them and telling them to repent and believe and be forgiven. So he hangs. And to continue in verse 30, with all of his disciples looking on, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Our Lord's dead. Now he's going to be buried. And so continuing with verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, in Dr. Moeller's book, he notes that the myrrh and the aloes that were brought by Nicodemus were the, the same types of things that were typically used to bury kings and rulers of the day. And here they point to the burial of the king of kings, the ultimate ruler. So we confess 
that our Lord Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. It's the foundation of the Christian hope rests in these affirmations. They capture in a magnificent, if not sometimes a horrific way, the indescribable love and mercy of our God. We shouldn't only marvel at this, but we should be able to join with Paul and boldly say, as he does in Romans 1.16, I am unashamed of the gospel, for, I, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. We actually have the easy part. All we have to do is obey. We have to repent. We have to turn to Christ, turn away from sin, and believe. And in doing that, we have to affirm the mighty, mighty work of our Lord on the cross. We have to affirm that He lived a perfect life of obedience, obedience to the will of God that took him through suffering on our behalf all the way to the cross to make the everlasting atonement for our sins where he was crucified, dead, and buried. That's the end of where we're at with the creed, but thankfully, that's not the end of the story. If that was the end of the story, we would have to, to work hard at trying to find the, the joy but in a couple of weeks, we're going to continue with the resurrection, the defeat of death, and his exaltation, and his reign for eternity, and his continued action, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we have today. So let me pray, and then if there's any questions, we can open it up for questions. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy for saving a rebellious and sinful people like us, not because of anything we did to deserve it, but simply because of your love. Father, we thank you for the work of your Son, for the suffering and for the death on the cross. And Lord, we look forward to studying further and just reveling in the truth of the resurrection and the exaltation as our great Lord and King. Father, we just pray that we never lose sight of the beauty of your word and the truth of the sacrifices that were made on our behalf, that we don't become callous or so used to the story that it loses its meaning and its power, but that we do always live in and reflect the power of your word, the power of the gospel, and that we take that out, and we take that out to the nations as you've commanded, because we live under the power of that great promise that Jesus came because he would save his people, and that he would save those people by graciously using us to proclaim his name and his works, and the offer of forgiveness. Lord, we just praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen.